fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. A tremendous Tuesday to you. Welcome to the program. So glad that you're with me. Let me give out the phone number to call. 888-914-9149. The toll-free line to talk to me or my guest, who I'll introduce in just a moment, a very illustrious one at that. Once again, that number to call, 888-914-9149. You can email the program, comments, questions. Love to hear from you. The address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. If you were following me on Twitter, you would have known about the guest that I'm going to introduce to you right now. One of the most successful American writers of all time. He's written multiple New York Times bestselling books, including 14 hardcovers and 16 paperbacks, which have all gone to number one. In total, he's published well over 100 novels, numerous other works of short stories. He's sold over 500 million copies in total. Wow. His latest is called The House at the End of the World, which is going to be released in just a few days from now on January the 24th. Of course, pre-orders are available at this moment. Joining me from his home in Southern California, Dean Koontz is my guest today. Dean, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. How are you? I'm well. I hope I'll be coherent, but let's see. <laughs> well, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. And uh, I really appreciate this chance to talk to you. I'm really excited about the conversation. And, and Dean, what I like to do with, with all of my guests is to ask them off the top about what I call their superhero origin story. So take me back to Pennsylvania, what your early childhood years there were like. Well, they, uh, I would, I'd, I'll preface this by saying it would sound like I wasn't a happy child, but I actually was a happy child uh, growing up in very difficult circumstances. My mm. dad was a violent alcoholic who I held 44 jobs in 34 years, and the years that he worked, other years he didn't work. Uh, And the reason for all the jobs, in part, was uh, he had a habit of punching out the boss, which is not (laughs) a good career advancement move. And and it was, uh, we never knew if we had a, a roof over our heads from day to day or food on the table. My mother was ill most of her life, and uh, yet did her best to protect me from his worst instincts. And uh, in the midst of all that, uh, it would seem like it would have been an unhappy childhood. And in many ways, it it deformed me for years to come. But in many other ways, uh, I, I found ways that I could be happy. I, I always, in the midst of darkness, found something that I found uplifting and happy-making, and Mm. as a consequence, I had an aunt who frequently told me, because she understood the circumstances of our home, she would say to me when she catch me reading a novel or in a happy mood, she would say, you're too happy for your own good, which I always thought was an odd thing to (laughs) say, but yeah, uh, yeah, so I grew up with the idea that happiness is a choice, which I, I absolutely believe it is, and it certainly worked for me to consider it that. Absolutely. My guest is Dean Koontz, best-selling author. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Uh, Dean, I've read that, that sometimes what you would do is, you, when you're thinking about what you ought to do, you would sometimes think of what your father would do and try to do the exact opposite. But w- when it comes to to your mother, it was a different story. And I, I heard an anecdote about, about your mom. Apparently your cousin told you that one time your mother 
found 20 cents in a payphone return slot, and she agonized for two days about what to do with this, and she wound up putting it in the church collection plate. Just talk to me about your mom and, and her character. Yeah, well, uh, quite the opposite of my father, which uh, I, I never I never understood it uh, and, I, and, I, and until the end of her life. Uh, I never uh, could understand how these two had gotten together and how this marriage had in fact lasted because I did not come from a Catholic family, so divorce wasn't mm. outside the issue. Uh, mm. But she was, uh, she was, she suffered from very high blood pressure at a time when there was no medicine for that, there was no cure for it. And she went through some experimental operations that did more damage to her than good. Uh, at one time, they thought that if there was a particular nerve, they would cut one spinal nerve. It would reduce blood pressure. It didn't, and it caused other problems. So she was always ill in and out of hospitals, uh, but was a person of great fortitude and not a complainer at all. And I think in part, that's where I sort of learned not to be a complainer and just to say, all right, this is what life has given you. Now deal with it. Oh, man. You, wow. Now deal with it. Your, your mom sounds like just, just an incredible person. And there, there was a time, uh, Dean, when, when you had to live for, for a little while at the home of a woman named Louise Kinsey, along with her husband, Bird. Talk to me about that experience and how that kind of contributed to your, your love of story and the beginning of your love affair with books. Well, you know, for many years, I didn't know where that came from because there weren't books in our house. And, uh, and they were considered kind of a waste of time by people in my family. Mm. Uh, and then one day, I, I harked back to that time I'd spent with Louise Kinsey when I was uh, three to four years old. And my mother had to be in hospital and rehab, uh, physical rehab. And my, I couldn't be left with my father because he wasn't responsible. So I was left with my mother's friend, Louise, who was older than my mother, and her children had finished high school and were gone. Mm. And I lived with her for six months, maybe a little longer. And every night she would put me to bed in her son's old bedroom, wow. and she would give me an ice cream soda, which I would... <laughs> enjoy sitting up in bed while she read a story to me. And many years later, one day, a moment of enlightenment, I said, I think that's where I first began to put together the idea of storytelling with peace and happiness. Uh, mm. And it didn't happen in our house, but by the time I was eight, I was writing stories on tablet paper, drawing covers for them, and peddling them to relatives for a nickel. I was sort of like <laughs> author, agent, publisher, uh, publicist, all together. And I'm quite sure, as I, uh, the older I got, I became quite sure it was that in that time when I was three and four, that that's where the notion of storytelling being such a wonderful escape, but also... Uh, a life lesson vehicle. And uh, it goes to show you that we never know what we do in life, how it may affect other people beyond our comprehension. And certainly she, Louise Kinsey, had an effect on me, I believe, of profound nature. Oh, that's just a beautiful story. And I'm sure all the, all the dentists listening out there are saying, oh my goodness, ice cream sodas before bed. But all the kids <laughs> are like, yeah, 
That that's that right. sounds about right. It's just a beautiful image, though, of her uh, telling you stories as a young boy, and and I, I love the fact that you just said that when when you were a kid, you became a bit of what what Guy Kawasaki calls an ape, author, publisher, entrepreneur, and and you you were publishing your own works when you were in third grade, right? Uh, the family wasn't happy about that because I was charging a nickel for one of these little <laughs> eight or ten page stories. And at first, because I was eight and I suppose to some degree cute, I was uh, I, I was able to peddle them to them. But they eventually got together in uh, in restraint of trade action, and uh, <laughs> they all agreed to refuse to buy my stories anymore. So. <laughs> Well, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, the burden is eased by, by the amount of books that you're selling these days. I really uh, appreciate that story. That's amazing. Dean Koontz is my guest right now on the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. I'm sure you got a lot of fans out there who would love to call in and ask you a question, 888-914-9149. And Dean, I mentioned off the top this idea of superhero origin stories. A lot of superheroes have a guide or a mentor or somebody who really believes in them, like like Alfred the Butler for Bruce Wayne slash Batman. Was there some? Was there a teacher growing up or, or somebody that, that really saw... You had a tough background. You've talked about that. But was there somebody who saw the gift in you, maybe before you even saw it in yourself? I, I, ha- I was a kid that most people didn't care about. I was something of a slacker in high school because I didn't see a future. Uh, for me coming out of the family I came out of. But I had this wonderful English teacher. Her name was Winona Garbrick, and she had been a whack in World War II. She stood about five foot one, I think, uh, and she was uh, uh, an enormous discipline, Marion. Uh, <laughs> even the big high school football stars were terrified of her. <laughs> but she was the sweetest human being. And uh, the, 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 the tough exterior was how she controlled the world, but there was a very soft and loving interior to that woman. And I had her as my high school English teacher from ninth grade through 12th grade. And she encouraged me every year to, to do writing, to do this, that, to function or, or to exercise my creativity. And when I... I, I managed to get to college by uh, working jobs in high school and going to an inexpensive teacher's college. And in my senior year, she heard I'd been accepted at one of these colleges, and she heard I was majoring in history. And she came into the hall between classes looking for me (laughs) and shouted from one end of the hall to the other, Coons! And the place cleared out like an old Western movie where <laughs> Gary Cooper would have to face off against the bad guys. And uh, and all the kids cleared out. They didn't want any part of whatever trouble I was in. And she came up the hall to me, and she started tapping her finger against my forehead with every word. She'd probably lose her job these days <laughs> with that. And she said, I hear tap your you're going to Shippensburg. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I hear you're majoring in history. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I know why you're majoring in history. It's easy for you. And you're always going to take the easy route if you don't change your ways. And she demanded that I major in history or in English. And I was so impressed that she cared that much that I changed my major to English and, of course, got some writing classes. And while I won't really 
pretend that that was how I learned to write. It nevertheless put me on the path of thinking about it more seriously. Mm. And she had a very profound effect. And I got to tell her that many, many years before she passed. Yeah. She got to see me writing some bad books in my early <laughs> career, but uh, at least she knew I was on the path. That, that's amazing that you were able to, to, to get in touch with her because so, so many times a, a great teacher that's really impacted us, they, they pass on or we, we just kind of lose touch. So I, I'm, that's amazing that she got to at least catch part of your career as it was getting going. And what she did uh, in, in the hallway that day, you wouldn't have become necessarily who you were with that, without that. Maybe, maybe. And, and you just never know. And, and I just, I just think that's an incredible story about how we, we do need people who not only care for us, but also have the toughness to, to challenge us. And, and I think a lot of kids, they, they're craving that kind of discipline and, and that kind of coupled with that kind of love. And I think you're right. I mean, when she violated your personal space bubble like that, I guess you could say that that probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be kosher today. But wow, what a story. You're listening to the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio. My guest is bestselling author Dean Koontz. And, uh, let me ask you this, Dean, what, what you went through in your upbringing, what did that teach you or inform you? How did that inform your understanding about what St. Paul calls really the mystery of iniquity and, and, and how sin and evil is in the world? How, how did that eventually inform or impact your, your later writing? It, uh, it gave me a real... Uh... Uh, a real awareness of something that too many people have lost or actively seek to deny, and that is the existence of evil. Uh, There's too many people in the world now that think uh, counseling and psychiatrists will deal with everything, and that Mm. evil is not actually a real quality in our world. Uh, I lived it, I saw it, uh, and it informed uh, my entire youth and adolescence because I could could see there's something you said earlier that I, I learned fairly early on, that evil can sometimes work or even often can work in the short term. But as I watched my father as a kid, I could see it never works in the long term. Mm-hmm. It is a dark road into a desperate and useless life. And that was a lesson I saw pretty early on. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, I, I took that attitude, well, whatever my father would have done, I will do the opposite. Mm-hmm. And that eventually became very important in, in the most intimate sort of way, because when my wife and I moved to California, we had lived mm-hmm. here less than a year. He was in Pennsylvania. My mother had passed years earlier. And a friend of his, one of the very few he ever had, called me up and said he's destitute, which he always was, and uh, he had, doesn't have long to live. So my wife and I talked about what do you do here, and we didn't want to bring him into our home, but we could afford to bring him west, get him an apartment, and, uh, and take care of him, which we did, because that was the thing he never had done. He had never taken mm-hmm. care of his family. And uh, we thought <laughs> yeah, we thought we were taking care of him for a year or so, but he lived 14 years. And this ties into what I was saying about evil. Mm-hmm. I made every effort in that time to see how could there be a reproachment? How could we open the door between us that had always been closed? How can I learn to understand him and what he had done 
over all those years. And it was in those 14 years, which where my career was at this point, not yet a bestseller, but it was getting there. Uh, and I could see at a formative time in my writing career that there comes a time when you confront evil that you are never going to understand it. You are going to, he ended up in the psych ward on two occasions when we were taking care of him. And ultimately he had to go into a more restricted kind of care than we had kept him in because he was a danger to himself and others. Mm -hmm. And it, it had, uh, it, it affected almost everything I wrote from that point on. Wow. And the characters that showed up in my work uh, were basically sociopaths. Uh, and my father, very late in his life, uh, after he'd threatened my life and threatened the life of the neighbor, uh, was diagnosed as sociopathic. And consequently, I think a lot of what I've written over the years is trying to understand this and that is trying to understand evil and mm. and the way it preys upon good uh, and in different ways it preys upon good to use good people but also to corrupt them and uh, I I lived a life for a long time where that was in the forefront where I saw it every day and so it had a profound effect on the work. Uh, it's amazing that that you didn't slip into any sense of of despair or, or defeatism when it came to your dad and, and when you had a chance to 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 look after him you could have said no I, after all he's done to me i forget it but but you didn't you, you you did what he you did to him what he wouldn't do for you or couldn't do for you and that that's a profound uh, witness right there and i have to ask you about this too my guest is dean coons you're listening to the kale clark show on relevant radio I have read that on a couple of other occasions. Now you were in danger from your from your dad, of course, at one point. But you have said in an interview that two times you've had loaded guns pointed at your face and you emerged unharmed. What what was the situation, and how does that affect your view of God's providence in, in your life? It comes to your survival in those years. Uh, I've had a number of times in my life, uh, quite a number. Uh, where I should have died, but didn't. Uh, and the first, uh, well, aside from my father's threats against us, which were numerous, but uh, when I was a kid, one of the jobs I worked uh, in my the year between junior and senior year in, in high school uh, was at a state park uh, where I worked a night shift between... Mm. Uh, 12 o'clock at night and 8 in the morning at the uh, state park campground. And it was the job to check in at that hour any late campers arriving mm -hmm. and, and answer any problems or questions that campers had. And one night while I was at work there, uh, somebody came into that campground on a motorcycle, walked into the office, pointed a gun in my face, and demanded that the, whatever money was in the office from renting out campground spaces. Well, there wasn't much money <laughs> in there mm. because uh, the cash register, most people are not checking in after midnight, yeah. although there are some. Uh, but, uh, but it turned out uh, that, uh, at least the police told me later, that there was somebody who had done other robberies like this, uh, 
throughout various small towns in Pennsylvania, not always uh, state parks, but showed up on a motorcycle at a lonely place like a convenience store, mm. walked in and pointed the gun in the face. And there had been apparently some incidents where the gun was fired. Um, so I, I, I look at a moment like that. The other was in a year we lived in Las Vegas, mm. and I happened to be in a parking lot when somebody opened fire on somebody else and he was mere feet from me and then turned and looked at me and said, pointed the gun, said, what are you going to do about it? Um, And uh, of course I said nothing. (laughs) 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 Not me. (laughs) Uh, And so those those were two rather dramatic moments. Uh, And then I had, uh, at one point I had a bleeding ulcer uh, this is not so dramatic, but it is kind of in its way. I didn't know I had a bleeding ulcer. And one night, uh, Jared and I, my wife, were sitting down to dinner, and I was walking into the room we're going to have dinner in, and I got dizzy. And I had to sit down at a chair in the kitchen first, and it passed. And then when I went to bed that night, I had a moment of dizziness. The next day was a Saturday. I was working in the office, and I got dizzy. And I stood up and uh, went into my bathroom that's adjacent to my office and splashed cold water in my face. The next thing I knew, I was laying down on the floor in a puddle of blood, and I had hit the floor and gashed open an eyebrow, and my whole eyelid was hanging down on my cheek. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and I ended up in the ER uh, where they were afraid to move me for seven hours because I had lost over half my blood to internal bleeding without being aware of it. There was no pain or anything else. And then they moved me to the ICU for three days, and I got a number of blood transfusions. If that could have very end, because my wife and I were alone in the house, she was at the opposite end of the house in the kitchen. And when I woke up in the floor with less than half my blood in my body, I I did something totally in character. Instead of going to get my wife and tell her I need to get to a hospital, uh, I got up, looked at the blood on the floor and said, I can't let that stain the limestone. And I went back into the bathroom and got some paper towels and wet them and tr- some wet and dry, and mopped up all the blood I'd spilled out of the slashed eyebrow. Oh <laughs> then goodness. I went to get her to drive me to the hospital. Uh, and instead, she looked, took one look at me and said, no, I think I'll call an ambulance. Yeah. Uh, and move. <laughs> there's, been, there's been a number of uh, things like that. And I look at it, and I always say, for some reason, God wanted me to stay here. Uh, there are things yet for me to do. And I have no doubt that's that's why I weathered so many threats over the years of different kind. Mm, mm, powerful story. My guest is Dean Coons. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. We've got to take a quick break right now, but we'll be back with Dean right after this break. We're going to talk about the process of writing, writing and spirituality, and how Catholicism has informed his many works. Be right back after this. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values. And fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. 
faith, facts, and fun. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to my conversation with number one New York Times bestselling author Dean Koontz, 888-914-9149 is the number to call toll-free. And Dean, I want to ask you a little bit about the process of writing. It's obviously a very solitary, it's a very lonely profession, but what are some of the benefits and drawbacks of doing your kind of work? It's, uh, well, I like people, and uh, that is the biggest drawback to it, is you spend mm-hmm. a large part of your life alone in a room. Now, uh, one of the benefits is I don't have to get on the California freeways every morning. <laughs> I just walk down the hall. Uh, and, Probably plenty uh, and of people I, listening to us right now on the California freeways, I'll tell you that, so... We love traffic jams at Relevant Radio. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, also, audiobooks. If, if people weren't in their cars, audiobooks wouldn't have most of its market. So I'm sure. grateful for free ways as well. But uh, it's. Uh, uh, I think one of the best things about it is uh, it gives you time to think. Uh, uh, a lot of our life is led in such a busy state that we don't have time for contemplation about much of anything. Mm-hmm. We're always on the move. and if we're, uh, But that's part of the job of a writer. You get into a scene, you get into a character. And if you want to make that come alive, the character or the scene or the entire story, uh, you find yourself having to think about all sorts of issues, uh, uh, philosophical issues and, and simpler moral issues, uh, and as a consequence, uh, it, it, it gives you a greater sense of hope and purpose mm. uh, than you might otherwise have. Uh, and that, I think, is the best thing about it, is it, it, it makes you think more about your own life and, and how to live it and, and how, to, how to discover what really makes you happy. Uh, mm. which the older you get, you discover isn't all, most of the things you thought would make you happy mm-hmm. when you were mm-hmm. 20-something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, youth is wasted on the young in a certain sense. But but having the time to think, and, and that's such a luxury, as you said, in today's world, to, just to be able to think through issues, uh, That's that's got to be a huge advantage there. And, and, and Dean, you're obviously very prolific. I, I mean, the sheer volume of output in your writing career has been staggering. And I've got a listener question from a fellow writer, from Joel Miller. Uh, his Twitter hashtag is at Joel J. Miller. He himself is the author of The Revolutionary Paul Revere. He's got an awesome Substack newsletter called Miller's Book Review. And he wanted me to ask you this, Dean. He says, you've obviously enjoyed extraordinary longevity as a writer. What do you do every day that other writers don't? <laughs> uh, boy, I have no idea because I, uh, I I know a few writers who are friends, but I don't mm. move in a circle of a lot of writers. I will say, uh, maybe to answer that question is why has it lasted this long and and how it's, I, first of all, I love what I do. I had, mm. This occurs to me now. I had somebody at my former publisher uh, who one day out of the blue said to me, you know, I've known a lot of writers and nearly all of them write to live. You live to write. Wow. Uh, and I stopped and looked at her and thought, well, what a strange thing to say. I don't know that that's true of most of the writers she's known and worked with. 
but it is true that I've pretty much lived to write. A book saved me uh, when it was when I found uh, growing up in that house. Uh, it's an odd thing to say, but when you're a kid and that is the house you know, that door closes at night or during the day, and what goes on in that house is you come to think what goes on in every house. And it was books that showed me there were other ways to live a life, mm-hmm. and that other families were different from ours. And, uh, and that opened the door to thinking differently about life. And as a consequence, uh, I fell in love with books, and I fell in love with writing, and in love with the English language. So when I get up in the morning at 5.30, and I'm at my desk by 6.30, 7 o'clock at the latest writing, and I write through till dinner, uh, that is not drudgery to me. That is joy to me. And as a consequence, uh, I, I think that's where the productivity comes from. Mm. If you struggle with it, now, it's always a struggle, don't get yeah. me wrong, I, <laughs> but, uh, but if the struggle becomes part of the fun for you, if the challenge of getting it done right and dealing with all the problems that arise in storytelling is something more of a, the way other people might enjoy doing a crossword puzzle or <laughs> undertaking some woodworking project uh, that gives them pleasure, uh, if that's the way you regard it, I think productivity then becomes almost a, a given uh, mm. because you can't wait to get to work each day and uh, and and the and the pages come, even if it takes 20 or 30 drafts, uh, the pages mount up. Well, wow, that's that's an incredible answer. And, and Joel also wanted me to follow up with another uh, question. I think you've kind of answered the first part, what gives you the most pleasure as a writer, but what gives you the most grief? Because <laughs> there is some sweet uh, agony here too, right? Yeah, to some extent. When you when you hate a moment in a story that if you've got a significant number of pages behind you and then a problem arises you never saw coming. That can be frustrating. <laughs> but I will frankly say the greater, the greater dissatisfaction in a writing career, in my experience, comes from having to deal with New York publishing, which is where 90% of all commercial publishing is. And there is an attitude in a lot of New York publishing uh, that beyond the Hudson River, everybody's an idiot. <laughs> huh. And and there was great resistance to things I tried to do in my career that ended up in, I'm not an argumentative person, mm. but sometimes if I know something's working, I mm. don't like to be told it isn't. And that happened many times in my life. I've been credited with creating the cross-genre novel. Whether I did or not, I don't know. But I hear that often said. And I knew, I know in the days I was doing it, my publisher at the time just didn't understand it and would tell me, if you keep this up, you'll have no writing career at all in another two or three years. Uh, and if there wasn't support where I had thought there needed to be, but I hung in there, and we would have success together, and I would think that success now would melt away the resistance to what I'm doing, but it rarely ever did. That resistance would find other things to be resistant of, uh, and it was the biggest struggle with me. I had a book called Lightning, which came after Watchers, which was mm-hmm. my first uh, 
second hardcover success. And the publisher was so adamant that it would damage my career that she said, we have to put this on the shelf and not publish it for seven years. And meanwhile, you have to write other books. Then we can get away with publishing it. And I thought, why not five years? Why not nine? <laughs> Seven. Uh, who could be that meticulous in their understanding of the literary work to peg when it could be successful? Exactly. And uh, and I forced the issue. It took months, but I forced it. We published it, and it went on to be the biggest success I'd had to that time. Uh, and I ran into that very many times in the course of publishing. About being told my vocabulary was too large, that people wouldn't be able to buy these books in volume, mm-hmm. or that the stories were too complex, or this, that, or the other thing. Resistance to the very thing I think is important in storytelling, and that is a moral substrate in it. Um, and as a consequence, that led to a lot of grief. But I also found that if you just kept plugging away at it, you'd either win them over or you'd move on to a new publisher who didn't give you the same grief as the other one. And now I'm at a publisher that's not so far given me any grief at all. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I suppose back then it, t- it took a lot of fortitude to stand up to them because you think, man, like, I mean, they'll, they'll give me the advance, maybe give me the paycheck if I, if I just do this, if I just do what they want what they want me to do, but you stuck to your guns, you stuck to your vision, and, and that's uh, that shows a lot. And, and obviously you were vindicated. You are vindicated by that. So uh, that's a great story, a little bit of inside baseball there about the New York publishing world, but really appreciate that. Let's go to the phones right now. Joseph is in Chicago. Hi, Joseph. What's your question for Dean Koontz? Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, thank you, Kale Clark, for letting me speak to one of uh, my author heroes. And Mr. Koontz, it's an honor to speak with you. I'd like to thank you for, for your work. Um, I discovered the odd Thomas series when I was traveling for business and I caused me to investigate you a little bit more. And I saw an interview on a a YouTube of a EWTN interview that you did. It was practically an hour long and your insights into the moral substrate and your storytelling and characters telling their stories was inspiring. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you because when I retired a year and a half ago, you inspired me to start writing. And I wrote and, and self-published my first novel uh, based upon reading the Odd Thomas series and Jane Hawk and The City and other of your novels and just being captivated by your storytelling and the experience has been exhilarating. Well, after listening to that, I'm going to have to buy a new hat because the old <laughs> one won't fit. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. That was very yeah, thank sweet. Thank you, Joseph. Man. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great phone call, but by Joseph, and and that's amazing. That you, not only has he appreciated your work, but it's inspired him to to write as as well. And let me ask you, Dean, how has your your faith affected? the worldview within your books. I mean, you were once quoted as saying that books should challenge people's worldview. Otherwise it just becomes a form of thumb sucking, if you will. So (laughs) how is, how do you try to get that, that worldview that you have across through your characters? Uh, There's certain things you don't want to do. You don't want to proselytize. You, uh, you, you, you don't want to, uh, 
you want to challenge it on on a level um, almost. Uh, I want to think how to put this. Uh, you don't want to challenge anyone else's faith or lack mm-hmm. of faith, really. What you want to say is, here is life lessons I have learned wrapped mm. up in this story. And some of them took a lot of pain and suffering to learn. Now, let me see if I can show you that through the character and through the events of this story. And if I can show you that through the events of this story, and if the events of the story are so kind of enthralling that you don't want to fail to turn the next page, then... I can reach you and make you think about things perhaps you've never thought about before. Mm. And that is certainly the way that fiction helped shape me uh, in in the work of Dickens, or there was a a fabulous suspense writer named John D. MacDonald who who wrote characters of of, of, uh, an incredible high order, uh, both uh, of the people they were, and of of the, the degree of development he did in them. And those shaped me not only in my writing, but in my character as a person. So I think I learned from reading a lot of good writers that the way to reach uh, and, and convince people of a different way to look at the world is... Um, is 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 through the way you would do it with a friend, which is mm-hmm. not to harangue them; it's to yeah. entertain them if you can, and to persuade them in the most gentle fashion. I, I really like that because when, when people are reading, obviously their, their their guard is down a little bit too. Oftentimes, when people are engaged in arguments surrounding, say, apologetics, people are always sort of thinking about what their next chess move might be. But when they're reading, especially if they're reading for pleasure, I think they're kind of more open to suggestion, if you will, uh, of that different worldview. I really, I really like that. That's a really great answer. My guest is Dean Koontz. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Got to take a quick break right now, but we'll be back with much more. 888-914-9149. Be right back. Explaining the Catholic faith and how you can live it and share it, too. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the program, 888-914-9149. My guest is multiple New York Times bestselling author, Dean Koontz. His new book, The House at the End of the World, is going to be released just a few days from now on January the 24th. Pre-order is available right now. And, And Dean, before the break, we were talking about how your faith influences your work, influences your writing, and... I, I, here's a quote from from a, a novel that you wrote called Devoted. Quote, Bella could not live without stories. Stories were the blessing of intelligence. They were food for the soul. They were medicine. You could live a thousand lives through stories and learn to shape your own life into a story of the best kind. End of quote. Now, Jesus obviously told stories. It was a huge part of his ministry. And, and one time, I'm a I'm a revert to Catholicism, but I spent a lot of time in the evangelical world, did some preaching. I was in ministry, and and one time a parishioner was really upset with me for using stories, for using illustrations in my my sermons. And I said, well, Jesus told stories, and he just looked at me and said, you're not Jesus. Well, no kidding. But I I had to laugh. But but Jesus was a storyteller, and his, his parables were sublime vehicles of truth. And and a good way to look at the world, the history of the world, is as salvation history, the story of God's dealings with us over time. And how do you think your books help people to see that, to see God at work in the world and in the at the individual level, at the micro level in people's lives? Uh, <clears throat> well, I had said earlier when we were talking about 
that high school teacher who mentored me and uh, or that friend of my mother's who read stories to me that you can't know how the things you do in your life uh, <clears throat> will affect other people. And that is enormously true as, if you're a writer. And mm-hmm. it's why it's necessary to be cautious of, about what you're writing. I make up the point, I write some very bad villains, but I always mm-hmm. make it a point that the villains uh, are not not people who are living happy lives. Uh, yeah. They are, uh, I do not make them glamorous. Uh, I, I shed, shy away from movies and books that glamorize evil mm-hmm. characters. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's interesting because I get a great deal of mail. Uh, the snail mail letters are slowly dying out. But at the, 20 years ago, I would get over 20,000 letters a year from readers. And we had a whole system that... Uh, uh, assistants would open them and put them out so I could read them. Uh, and the most important ones I would answer personally, there were hundreds of those a year. And it was fascinating. I, I didn't consider that sure uh, because hmm. you would find out what you had written, how it affected people in ways you never anticipated. Uh, and it was enlightening to look at hundreds and thousands of letters from people over decades and see what aspect of this book or that story affected them, how it affected them and why. And it would be all sorts of lessons I learned about how to construct a scene, how to develop a story to have greater emotional impact on people. Mm. And it's through that emotional impact that you carry the intellectual impact. Uh, The one carries the other. And uh, and so I got a real uh, um, awareness uh, of uh, of how fiction does affect people for the positive. I've always understand understood how it could affect for the negative, but I got a new appreciation how it could affect for the positive, and how a writer needs to uh, concentrate on having that effect and not the negative one. Mm. Mm, that's beautiful. My guest is Dean Coons, best-selling author. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, and and Dean, your books are full of not only mystery in a lot of cases, but the concepts of wonder and, and beauty are really ever present. Is is that is that kind of drawn from your own personal perception uh, of the transcendental of beauty that you experience in your life? Uh, you know. Uh the world is an, it's a marvel. Uh, the universe, uh, the, the likelihood the universe would be anthropic uh, to allow human life or to allow any life at all is, is the odds of that are staggering. Uh, there's hundreds of different elements have to be fine-tuned in the universe. Mm-hmm. I've written about that. So I kind of was aware of that from a pretty young age and had a great sense of wonder and grew up reading people like Ray Bradbury and writers who had a great sense of wonder about life and the world. And I've certainly maintained that. In fact, the older I get, the more amazing everything looks to me. Uh, And one thing I recommend if anybody is having a moment in their life where they're losing that sense of wonder about the world 
And at one time, I got so busy in my life and was so exhausted that I sort of was losing that. And that's when we got our first golden retriever. Uh-huh. And watching that, yeah, watching that dog uh, brought back to me the sense of wonder in the world because dogs are enchanted by everything I see. And uh, you go for a walk with a dog, and you can have walked that route a thousand times. But the first time you walk it with a dog, it's an entirely different place. And that dog makes you stop and look at things and think about things you have you had lost in in your sense of being too familiar with uh, with the world, and uh, and so I'm on my third dog, mm-hmm. and I've kept mm-hmm. I think a ch- sense of childlike wonder, in part because of those animals. I'm so happy to mention that. I was going to ask you about that because you're a dog person like me. Obviously, I've got a black lab, and and your novel Midnight features a black lab named Moose. Yeah, I've also got a little terrier mix, and your golden retrievers, Trixie and Anna, who passed away, your current dog, Elsa, are so important to you. What, what do you think dogs can teach us about spirituality? I know that might be a strange question, but I, I think it might be on point. Uh, I have had experiences with dogs that suggest to me that uh, dogs see things we can't, uh, that dogs have some special relationship with the world. They are, of course, first of all, complete innocence, as no human being can hope to be in this life. Uh, and uh, that, that, I think, gives them a certain relationship with the natural world and with God in the natural world. And I see it, uh, it seems to me, almost daily with, uh, with dogs. And uh, so they, give me, they, they heighten my sense of wonder, but they also... Uh, bring to me uh, a sense of the, uh, the how thoughtfully the world is put together mm, and how many beautiful. things in life are a blessing if only we'll stop to think about them that way. Uh, mm. And dogs are certainly a blessing if we'll take them into our life and treat them well. Uh, they will give back love, and that's the thing I think about dogs. Dogs are that unquestioning, they give you that unquestioning love uh, yeah. And that is essentially the love of God. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, we, we had a dog who passed away in, in March on St. Patrick's Day. We had him for many years. His name was Egbert. And my wife always used to say that, hey, the way he looks at us so trustingly and so long, that, that's the way God wants us to to deal with him in a certain sense. And you know, it might sound strange to some people, but if you're a dog person, you know. You know what I'm talking about. Let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Thomas in Vienna, Virginia. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Mr. Kuntz. Hi, Kale. Hi. Hi. Hey, uh, I just want to say, Mr. Kuntz, I really uh, have appreciated in your works, I've read your Odd Thomas series, your level-headed and even-handed approach to portraying um, faith and religion. That's kind of something that drew me to keep reading that series after I finished the first book, as well as, of course, the thrilling plot points. Um, <laughs> my question for you is, uh, what are your like thoughts and feelings about the film adaptation of Odd Thomas? Do you feel like it conveys the things you wanted your story to convey? I've been listening uh, to the program now and hearing about your idea of conveying morals in a certain way. Yeah, what do you What do you think of the film adaptation? That's a great question. Well, it's some adaptations are always problematic. Uh, in this case, the director of that was also the screenwriter Stephen Sommers, and Steve wrote. Uh, the most beautiful screenplay I've ever read in my life. It was absolute perfection. And I sit, when I read someone's screenplay of mine, I sit with the red pens 
buy a fistful because I figure I'm going <laughs> to need them to mark up the script. In Steve's case, I didn't make a mark on the script. Wow. Uh, and he asked me, he wanted to get by the studio system by raising the money to make it himself and without a studio. And he conned me into going to a couple of film days of film marketing where he, we would together do a dog and pony show and raise the money. We did. <laughs> and then, I, I won't go into details of this, but let's just say somebody within the, the, the production managed to get some of that money siphoned away from the production without Steve's understanding. And suddenly he found himself told that he couldn't finish the picture because they'd run out of the money that had been raised. They hadn't run out of it. It had simply gone somewhere else. And Steve, being the kind of human being he is, had to cut back that screenplay. He he had to ask the entire cast and crew, 150-some people, to stay in Santa Fe at their own expense for two weeks while he sought the money to finish the film. He had originally started with a $30 million budget and ended up making it, I suspect, for about 12. Uh, and everybody stayed in Santa Fe. That's the kind of person he is, the loyalty he commands. Uh, the movie isn't what it could have been, but there's much about it that I like, and I liked the performance of Anton Yelkin as odd. I thought he was a marvelous choice and, and died tragically young. Mm. Oh, wow. In, in a sense, just like the character he played. Oh, th thanks. thanks for that answer. I really appreciate that question as well. Thomas, Thomas calling to ask about the odd Thomas film adaptation. And... And Dean, obviously your latest work, I, I, we've got about a minute left. I just want you to speak on that for a minute, The House at the End of the World. What can your fans expect when they, to, to misquote St. Augustine here, when they take up and read this? What are they going to see? Well, it's a very scary story, but it's a very uplifting story. And that's why it's about a woman who has been failed by our society and not given justice. And she goes away to live alone on an isolated island because she doesn't trust anybody anymore. And she finds out going to live on an isolated island is not going to make her life any easier. It's going to make it much more dangerous. And uh, and ultimately, uh, hope is going to be found in her own courage and her own faith and, and that of the people who turned her for help. And it's that kind of story. Oh, I love it. I love it. And Hey, we we got to get to the house at the end of our lives, the Father's house, and and your your work really helps people see that the hand of God in the world. Really appreciate you, Dean Koontz. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate you. You can find him on Twitter at Dean Koontz. The new book, The House at the End of the World. Stay tuned for Brooke Taylor. It's got Dr. Chad Gerber. Great conversion story. Stay tuned to Relevant Radio. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.